two pastors were sitting in those little tight seats as you're waiting for the airplane. You know, they're these little plastic seats and there's people wandering around all over the place. It's such confusion. But these two pastors were going to a conference and so they ran into each other and they're ready, waiting to get on their plane and they, they start arguing. And the Baptist pastor said, you just don't understand. If you are going to pray and be heard by God Almighty, you have to get on your knees. And then his four-square pastor buddy from the north side of town said, no, 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 Greg, you don't understand. The only way God will ever hear you when you're praying is if you raise your hands like this. Well, there was a, you know how those little chairs are and Two feet in front of you is another row of chairs. Well, there was a guy who was just sitting right across, and he said, well, you know, I don't know what you folks are talking about. I'm a PG&E lineman, and the most effective prayer I ever prayed was hanging upside down 20 feet in the air. <laughs> prayer is not about physical position. Prayer is about heart position. Now it is true your knee altitude often changes your heart attitude, but prayer is all about what kind of attitude is in your heart towards God, what kind of attitude in your heart towards yourself, towards your sin, and towards whatever it is that you are praying about. And pray you must, because God loves a desperate heart. God loves a desperate heart. Because it's only when we have a desperate heart because we've tried everything else out there that we finally turn to the only one who can hear us. Today I want to look at one of the best prayers in the Bible. Now I know, I know, there's dozens of best prayers in the Bible. But this is definitely one of them and certainly one of my favorites. And we don't know who wrote Psalm 130, but we know that he loved God. And he was painfully aware of his own sin. More importantly, he was blessedly aware of God's willingness to turn to us when we turn to him. Because as you know, God doesn't necessarily turn to everyone. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, nor his, that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The psalmist, on the other hand, knew his sin and he knew how to position himself in front of God so that God would not hide his face. The psalmist knew how to have a desperate heart. We're going to break down our psalm today and we're going to see what God wants us to know from it about prayer and especially about prayer of confession. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. O King, hear my voice. 
Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O King, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I will wait for Yahweh. My soul waits. And in His word I hope. My soul waits for the King more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Oh, Israel, put your hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption. And He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. The secret of prayer, according to Psalm 130, is that you turn to the personal creator, king of the universe, and away from sin. Expectant that he will hear you, and then you wait until he acts. God loves a desperate heart. When we read Psalm 130, we learn several secrets about how to have this expectant heart. And the first one we find in the first two verses. We need to expect to be heard. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. O King, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, the psalmist is desperate. The psalmist is desperate. We get this from beginning to the end of the psalm. This is one of the big ideas that we must learn about. He's crying out of the depths. The psalmist prays with all he is to all that he knows of God. This is the first element of desperate prayer. Prayer is what is in your heart rather than just mouthing what you think God wants you to say. Let me say it again. Desperate prayer is speaking to God what is really in your heart as opposed to just mouthing what you think God wants you to say. Because if you're just mouthing what someone told you to say or you're just mouthing what you think God wants you to say, you'll never be desperate. Pray reflecting the reality of your soul. Pray reflecting the reality of your sin. Pray reflecting the reality of your fears, your troubles. Because God knows all of these anyway. One reason we don't experience more answers to prayer is that we don't pray real prayers about real issues really important to us, to the real God. We just say our prayers. But I want you to notice something else here, and this is crucial to the whole psalm. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. O King, hear my voice. Now, in the first case, the psalmist cries out to Yahweh. And Yahweh, if you remember, is the personal name of God. It's the name that he revealed to Moses as his personal name. This is how I identify myself, says God. And the psalmist cries out to the king. Now, of course, as you all know, normally these are translated 
L-O-R-D with the small caps for Yahweh. And then you have the next one with a capital L-O-R-D, which just means king. You'll also find in the Old Testament just L-O-R-D, and that just means something like sir. But the psalmist here is very specific, and it's very important for us to remind ourselves what these words mean. The psalmist acknowledges two things in this very short passage. First, he acknowledges that he has a personal relationship with Yahweh. He's calling him just not exactly the same, but in the same vein where Jesus says, call him Abba. It's not exactly the same, but it's a personal name. It's a personal relationship. But then he also realizes to whom he's talking. He's speaking to the king and he addresses him as such. Now, my friends, you, even more so, can expect your prayers to be heard because the God on whom you call is both the personal God who created you and everything else in the world and because your personal God is also has sovereign authority over everything and therefore he can answer that prayer as king. You can pray to the personal creator king of the universe out of the depths of your heart because God loves. God loves a desperate heart. The first lesson we learn is that we can expect to be heard. But then the second thing we need to learn is to see things rightly. I get this from verses 3 and 4. If you, O Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O King, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Sin. Sin is the cause of the psalmist's depth of pain. Psalm 130 is a psalm of confession. It is a personal lament for the torment that is in his soul because he sinned to put that torment there. And the psalmist cries out because he longs to have God forgive his sins. He cries out because he knows that he has no call upon God except God's mercy. If God had not promised to forgive sins, the psalmist and we would be lost. Now, fortunately, we have some such promise. In Numbers 14, God spoke through Moses. And now please let the power of the Lord be great, as you, Yahweh, have promised, saying, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. That was Moses quoting Exodus, but now Moses continues, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. By God's grace, by His free and 
willing blessing. For those who have trusted God's promises, we can have assurance that God's steadfast love will forgive our iniquity and wipe out our transgressions. Now, again, we have an advantage over the psalmist because he couldn't fathom how it was going to happen that God would fulfill this promise. But he put his faith in that promise. He trusted that promise knowing that somehow God would bring it about. My friends, this is exactly what we looked at last week. And last week we saw this is how Abraham was saved. And therefore, Paul applied it to us. This is how we would be saved. By trusting the promises of God for us in Christ. And so the psalmist knows this and he lays claim on it. You promised, Yahweh. And I'm banking on your promise. And he was forgiven. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. It's kind of a strange statement. Did you hear that? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I'm just curious. Anybody honest here? Is anybody saying, wait a minute, those two don't go together. Anybody like that? Okay, a couple of you. Thank you for being honest. So, imagine you have one chance. You have one chance to make it with God. And if you mess up, you're toast. Say you're going along and all of a sudden, oops, you blow it. Well, now that you've blown it, you might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you shall die, right? There's no point if you've already blown your only chance. There's no point in trying anymore. But with you there is forgiveness. And because there is forgiveness, because the Lord allows you to be forgiven, now you can live in such a way that you fear the Lord. Because there you can find forgiveness, therefore you can repent. Now we need to know what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is the Fear. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament use the word fear. The fear of being in a wrong relationship to Yahweh. And because you have this fear, because you you desire not to be in a wrong relationship to Yahweh, therefore you find your way back to Him by grace through faith. The fear of the Lord is the understanding that there is nothing more important in the world than to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Now it's true. Every single one of us finds our eyes drifting over to stuff. 
We find our eyes drifting over to circumstances. We find our eyes drifting over to relationships, all of which that we want to have. And and so we believe these things are going to provide for us or they're going to protect us or they're going to give purpose to us. And so we start fearing what life would be like if we didn't get our stuff, our circumstances, or our relationships just the way we want them. And when we do this, we are fearing those things and not fearing God. And so we organize our lives in such a way that we go after those. We need to steal, we steal. We need to lie, we lie. We need to cheat, no problem. Everybody cheats on their taxes. I don't, by the way. Uncle Sam, I don't cheat on my taxes, okay? We do whatever we can not to face the bad things that might happen if we don't put ourselves into a right relationship with whatever idol it is that we're chasing at that moment. But what the psalmist is saying is because there is forgiveness, because he is willing to forgive my sins, I can see God rightly. I can see God as greater than all of my coveting for stuff, all of my lusting after relationships, all of my urgent desires for my circumstances to change. And when I see God rightly, I will see that he is the biggest, baddest lion on the block. The lion of Judah is bigger than any demon, every demon. The Lion of Judah is bigger than that sin that has had a grip on your heart for 20 years. Or 80. Daniel, for example, rightly feared getting into a wrong relationship to God as opposed to the king. Rather than fearing what the king's advisors might do, he understood, Daniel understood, that not praying to Yahweh was far worse than being eaten by lions. And so what did he do? Knowing that the law had passed, knowing that the king's advisors were out to get him, what did he do? He went and he prayed to Yahweh. Because he knew That not praying to Yahweh was going to put him in a worse position than being at the bottom of the lion's den. If I'm going to be eaten, if I'm going to be mauled by lions, so be it. That is less of a threat than being on the wrong side of God. What would you call that other than fearing the Lord? But there's more than that. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of Yahweh is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. All of these sins, all of these sins are simply ways of covering our rear end, so to speak, so that we can do whatever it is that we want to do and not get caught. 
I told my boys all the years growing up, and I've started telling my little girl, the worst sin you can do at this point in your life is tell a lie. Why? Because if you teach your heart that you can get away with lies, you will be able to lie yourself into any sin. Fear the Lord. And that means we are going to see our sins rightly. Learn to hate pride and arrogance and evil behavior and perverse speech. Detest it in your heart. That way you will always be on the right side of the glass and you won't be within the lion cage of the Lion of Judah. Remind yourself that when you taste the delicacies of temptation, you are feasting on bile and vomit. <sighs> Were it only so easy. I've said many times, Christianity is simple, straightforward, but it is not easy, is it? Because it's not easy. Because it is a battle that we are going to fight between now and the day that the Lord come, calls us home. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because it is this battle, we must have a desperate heart. We must have a heart that desperately longs for God if we are going to have the right kind of fear and do the right kind of battle against our flesh, the world, and Satan. The fear of the Lord is having a desperate heart that God loves. And this desperate heart God loves, which the psalmist calls the fear of the Lord, is well described in the next two verses where we learn to wait for an answer. Verse 5, the psalmist says, I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits. Every part of me waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for Yahweh, for the king, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. The psalmist is picturing himself as a guard on a watchtower around the village. And this, I imagine, was a very common thing to do. People took turns staying up all night, keeping a lookout so that enemies wouldn't be able to come in and attack your village unannounced. Now, I can put myself in that situation mentally. You're tired. You're cold. You're longing for the warmth and comfort of your bed. Instead of standing outside alone, however, the psalmist is waiting for his God. And he's at his post, so to speak. He's doing what he must. He's, he's continuing in his life. He's doing the things that he knows he needs to do, even if he doesn't want to. He wants to throw in the towel. But he does what he must. He does what he knows he needs to do. He stays at his post. And he waits for Yahweh to act. Maybe you can't identify with standing guard on a watch like that. Maybe you're a parent and you remember those days of longing when your kid at 3 a.m. is still crying and just can't or won't stop crying. And the one thing you most want is to go put your head back down on the pillow. 
Imagine that kind of desire being in your heart, going about your day, going about the normal business that you need to go through, desperately seeking. Okay, Lord, you're going to take care of this. I'm trusting in you. I'm knowing, I know that you're going to come through on this. And I am going, I'm going to wait. This anticipation, this confident dependence, this is the attitude of one who fears the Lord. To fear the Lord is the other side of the same coin that we call trusting the promises of God for you in Christ. The promise is that God will meet your every need, even when you're not getting sleep at 3 a.m., even when your circumstances still haven't changed. Even when your child is going into left field, you're still moving forward in the Lord, knowing that He's got your back because He promised to do so. And the fear side of that coin is the saying, Oh Lord, even though all these things are happening, even though I'm not sure which way to go, I can't just throw in the towel. I can't just kick the football. I got to keep going because I want to be in a right relationship to you more than I want to be in a right relationship to anybody and everybody else. Now, None of us, none of us can come close to matching that level of perfection. I mean, let's just be real. That's why the psalmist is desperate. Because he can't make it either. And he is desperate. He is crying out, Lord, help me. I'm hanging on by the skin of my teeth. I need you. God loves a desperate heart. We can't begin to have that level of perfection. So let's begin with one very small, minor, easy area to deal with. And we'll deal with the one that the author's dealing with, confession of our sins. Piece of cake, right? None of us struggles to confess our sins at all. Not. Here's where we will find a right understanding of the fear of the Lord will help us in our fight against sin. Notice, he says, I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. When you sin, go to God. Oh, I love how Pastor Benji continually brings this back to us in, in his sermons. Oh, well, I'm going to have to beat myself up for a couple of hours because I did this sin before God can talk to me. Who said that? Where do you read that in God's word? You don't have to beat yourself up in the corner. I'm going to go stand in the corner and wait a couple hours before God. No! Go to Him. Go to Him. As soon as you know you sinned, go to Him. He will receive you. And listen what the psalmist says. Put your hope 
in His Word. Put your hope in the Word of God. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. He will keep His promises. He promised it, He will keep it. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Rest on that promise. Believe that promise. Trust that promise so that you and I will be able to move forward. So that now, free from the burden of your sin, you can in fact fear the Lord rightly. Not just, not just this. Oh Lord, don't hit me with a lightning bolt. That was the first six or seven years of my Christian life. Thinking that I was going to turn a corner and God was going to throw that lightning bolt. That's not what the fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord is going right back to him when you know that you've sinned and you say, Lord, heal me. And you know that he will. When you trust God's promises for you in Christ to forgive your sins, you can look to him as a child in the loving embrace of a good father. Furthermore, as if that's not enough, you have this kind of relationship that trusts in his words and goes right back to him right when you sin. What else will happen? Well, you'll be able to grow in your, be able, your ability to wait on him by praying. You will grow in your ability to wait on him in Bible study. You will grow in your ability to wait on him in the true fellowship with other believers confessing your sins to one another. Oh my goodness, can we do that? Yes, we can. You will grow in your ability to wait on him in true fellowship with other believers confessing your sins to one another and forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you and you start living like that, then you will show yourself, you will show your neighbors, and you will show the world what it looks like to have a desperate heart. And God loves a desperate heart. Expect to be heard, verses 1 and 2. See things rightly, verses 3 and 4. Wait for God's answer, verses 5 and 6. And then in 7 and 8, Trust in God's unfailing love. Oh, Israel. Now I'm going to confess, I have a bias. I think when in this kind of situation in the Old Testament, not in every situation, but in this kind of situation, when he says, oh, Israel, he's talking to you and me too. He's talking to the people of God and we are the people of God. So let me say this. Oh, church, hope in Jesus. For with Yahweh, with Jesus, there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem his people from all his iniquities. God's unfailing love, God's steadfast love is something that you can put your hope in. It's something that you can be desperate for more than you would be desperate for a cool glass of water in the Mojave Desert in August. 
God's steadfast love. In other translations, the New Living Translation says unfailing love, and that's my favorite of them. Loving kindness, faithful mercy. But my favorite is actually the one uh, years ago, Pastor Benji told me to get Sally Lode Jones's The Jesus Storybook Bible, and I've, I'm on my fourth time reading it through for my little girl. His steadfast love is God's wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That is a great translation of a great word. The point is that God not only loves, the point is that God is steadfast, continual. He perseveres and he is faithful. He is kind-hearted and God is unfailing in his love for his people. God's love for those who trust his promises will not fail. This is exactly what David knew when he wrote in Psalm 63:3, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David trusted in God's unceasing love more than he valued physical life. How on earth can you value something more than breath? Well, you value it because you know that someday you are going to stop breathing. And if there is something that you can grab a hold of now that will continue through that day that you stop breathing, you will find it better than breath. And therefore you will praise the Lord. That is how you value something. David knew that the worst the world could throw at him, death. Even death is a tool that fits us for the glory of God's unfailing love. Paul put this exact same concept in a different way. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this stuff we don't have, circumstances that aren't true for us, relationships that are ruined far beyond human repair, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They are ephemeral. They evaporate in one day. But the heavenly things, the things that are unseen, are eternal. Don't misunderstand. David and Paul both knew this life was full of trouble. David and Paul knew that God would take every trouble they faced, even death itself, to be our servant for God's glory, our ultimate joy, and for the growth of God's kingdom. That kind of confidence is the fear killer. And that kind of confidence is what makes a heart desperate for God more than the relief that we're begging God for in our prayers. 
And all of this is possible. All this hope in God's unfailing love, all the confident dependence, all the forgiveness-inspired fear, and all of the trust that God will give us mercy. And the psalmist says that in verse 8. He will redeem God's people from all His iniquities. All this is possible because God redeemed us. Us and all of His people from all all of our sins. My friends, you can live your life today. My friends, you can live your life tomorrow and for an eternity of tomorrows in hopes because God redeems His people. He forgives all His people of all our sins. And God loves a desperate heart. One that is desperate enough to cling to that redemption rather than embrace the lies of every culture that has ever existed in this sin-sick world. Still we fear. Oh God, forgive us. We are finite. We are fallible and we just actually blow it. We want to blow it. I mean, let's, let's be honest. A lot of our sinning is a sinning that we're running towards, right? Oh. One of my fears is that I don't have a desperate enough heart. My heart's weak. It gets tired. It gets fickle. It gets hungry. It gets sick. It gets sore. So how do I go about getting this desperate heart? Now along with the other clues we found in this passage, Jesus gives us a story that tells us one way of going about and getting this desperate heart. It's a story about a dad, and I can relate, because he's a dad, and his son is demon-possessed. No, that's not why I can relate. But this dad is begging Jesus to heal his son. How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him in the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can. What? All things are possible for him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. That is naked faith. That is pure trust. That is holy fear of the Lord. That brings an immediate answer because God won't refuse a heart that is so desperate. It lets go of every other possible avenue and clings to God. When you struggle with your own doubts and your own heart cries out with the depths of 3 a.m. fears, Cry out for more confidence. Cry out for more faith. Cry out for more unfailing love. Simply cry to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Because God loves a desperate heart. Lord, give us that desperate heart to cry out to you. And then give us you. More than the 
the dreams of stuff that we long for more than all our desires for our circumstances to be exactly as we want them to be, more than all of the relationship problems that we want to end. Lord, let us cling to You. And let us know that You are oh so worthy and oh so much more glorious than all of the golden, sparkly, diamondy things that we chase after. Lord, give us You. And give us a heart desperate for you. In Jesus' name, amen.